Good morning. Our reading is from Matthew 3, 1 through 12. In those those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to the baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not pressure to say, or presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." praise you for your word and that you speak. And as you speak, I pray through this mouth, prepare our hearts, prepare our hearts to receive your word. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We've been in, this is, I think, now one month in Matthew, and we have seen now that the messianic hope of Israel has arrived in Jesus of Nazareth, who is the son of David, who is the son of Abraham. We've already seen how so many prophetic strands have come together in this one man, together in Jesus. And so continuing the theme of prophetic fulfillment, Matthew moves now into how John the Baptist came in fulfillment of prophecy. Even so, those prophecies are still about the dawning of the Messiah and the great kingdom that he would inaugurate. And so I want us to see three things today. First, I want to set the context, because at the beginning of a book, there's a lot of context that needs to be built. And then I want to ask the question, what is at the very heart of John's ministry? And then thirdly, I want you to see that the king was about to arrive, and he was bringing with him salvation and judgment. 
It's interesting to me that chapter 3 begins with the words, in those days. Because the very last thing that Matthew had been narrating were the very earliest years of Jesus' life, right? His birth and toddler years. And we know from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus was only a few months younger than John the Baptist. So, but, but here is John in chapter 3, and he is commanding the attention of the Jews, and he's a fully grown man with an established ministry. So in those days doesn't mean in the days when Jesus was still a toddler, right? All of the sudden, from chapter 2 to now chapter 3, We've been transported at about 25 to 30 years. So Matthew must mean something a little bit different by in those days. We're going to come back around to that shortly. Compare that, compare Matthew's way of saying when this happens with the way that Luke does it. Luke has a very precise method for dating these events. In Luke chapter 3, he writes, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. A big difference in dating it. Luke's very precise. We can actually learn from Luke's writing that John's prophetic ministry probably began around the year 28 AD, depending on exactly how you count years. But Matthew's recording things differently. For all of the sudden, in those days, John the Baptist appears on the scene in the wilderness of Judea. We learned from other passages that the wilderness of Judea, where John roamed, was on the eastern side of the Jordan River. John appears in the wilderness, preaching, and since he's called John the Baptist, you might think that baptism was like the primary purpose of his ministry, but it wasn't. That was sort of an auxiliary thing. The most important part of John's ministry was his preaching. He came from the wilderness preaching. So John's a prophet. In fact, he is the last prophet of the Old Covenant, or he's like the last Old Testament prophet. And he comes preaching. His prophetic ministry, all about preaching, all about proclaiming, and most preeminently, John was a herald which means that he didn't come speaking for himself. He was not presenting his own ideas. He would had no opinions that he was pushing forward. His message came from someone else, from a higher authority. John was speaking for God. John's voice, in a prophetic sense, is the voice of God. And so what is the message that John heralded on behalf of God? Verse 2, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Of course, that's a summary statement. It sums up everything that John was about. It's 
It's a culmination of his entire mystery. Everything boiled down to the singular sentence, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now before I dive into what that message means, I want to take a look at the Old Testament prophecy that Matthew quotes. And Matthew says John has come fulfilling because it helps to illuminate what John's message is all about. So look at that. That quotation is verse 3. For this is he, Matthew's writing, he's like narrating to us. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Matthew's quoting Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. And I'll take you to those verses and then I want to show you the two verses that are connected to it, the two following verses. So this is Matthew 40 verses 3 through 5 then. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." That passage in Isaiah is the voice of God. That's God speaking in the wilderness. Matthew says that applies to John. John speaks with the voice of God. Now, in antiquity, when a king traveled, his servants would go before him and they would repair the roads. And so if there was a pothole, they would fill it in. And if something was washed out, they would repair the road. And if there was a harsh turn, they would cut the hills to straighten it. They would do whatever they could do to make that road as easy to traverse as possible. They wanted the king to arrive as quickly and as unencumbered as possible. That's John's purpose. He's preparing the way for the king. Or as Isaiah 43 says... He's preparing the way for the Lord. Lord is the word for Yahweh. John is preparing for Yahweh. He was coming through the wilderness. He was coming to his people. And when Yahweh comes to his people, he brings with him his kingdom. Now, kingdom... The kingdom of heaven that he brings, and John says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That kingdom is not so much about territory, geography, geopolitical boundaries. That kingdom is about the presence of Yahweh. It's about his rule, right? Like Habakkuk 2 6 says, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Right? It's about the revelation of God upon the people. That kingdom, that's coming with God. So Matthew quotes from Isaiah 40, and he's telling us that John was the prophesied voice, the one who would come prepare the way for the Lord, which means that the hope of the Old Testament, everything that the prophets and the law had anticipated, it's all about to break upon Israel, upon that very generation. The divine king and his kingdom were about to arrive. 
which entirely comports with the main point of the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there's no confusion. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ, these are all synonyms. They're, they're the same thing. When John says the kingdom of heaven is at, as, is at hand, do you know what he doesn't mean? That it's thousands of years in the future. As if it's something we're still waiting for. He doesn't mean that. He means it's imminent. It's near. It's, it's right upon you. It's coming in your lifetime to those he's speaking to. Right? It, it's so soon that they needed to take immediate action. And what was that action? Repent. It's happening now, so repent. He wasn't, John didn't come preparing for something that was going to happen millennia in the future. It was then. In the hearts of the Jews, those Jews, the ones listening to him, John was preparing the way of the Lord. Like this river of living water was about to just burst out of the wilderness and flow through Israel and to the nations. Scripture continually casts the wilderness in a theological light. So yes, it's a place, but it's significant theologically. Think of the wilderness. Remember, that's where Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years as, as a punishment as a judgment, it was a place of, of trial and hardship. And yet, while they were there, God provided for them, and he was with them in a pillar of fire and of smoke. So it was a place of, of trial, but it was also a place of the presence of God, of nearness of God. And, then, and, and it was a place of purification for Israel, for that wicked generation died in the wilderness to leave that holy people. And then Jesus, we'll soon read this in Matthew, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days of temptation. He faces trial, and what's revealed there is the purity of his heart. How untouched he is by the temptations of man. He feels them, but he does not give in to them. The wilderness is a place of both judgment and salvation. And now think of Elijah. When God brought judgments upon Israel, Elijah was driven into the wilderness multiple times, and there God provided for him, and there Elijah heard the voice of God. Like Elijah, John is in the wilderness. Like Elijah, John is a prophet. And John is dressed just like Elijah. Look at verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was a locust and wild honey. So you go to First and Second Kings in your Bibles, and you'll see Elijah just kind of appear on the scene, almost out of nowhere. There's Elijah, and he's dressed in a garment of hair with a leather belt around his waist. Elijah had one of the most powerful prophetic ministries in the Old Testament. And, and at the end of his ministry, he doesn't die. But instead, God takes him up to heaven in a whirlwind. 
sort of just disappears. As suddenly as he appeared on the scene, he vanishes. To the Jews, Elijah became a symbol for all of the prophets. Moses was a symbol for the law. Elijah was a symbol for the prophets. And at the very end of the prophetic writings, the last words of the Old Testament, God promises to send somebody back, to send back Elijah. He took Elijah away, and now he's going to bring him back. And when Elijah comes again, it will be a day of judgment and salvation. Listen to these words from Malachi, the very last words of the Old Testament. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." Do you hear John using such similar language as that? That's what we just read in Malachi. And here's John. He, he doesn't just look like Elijah, but he's living like Elijah in the wilderness, and, and he speaks like Elijah. Jesus told us that John was the Elijah to come. Do you know this? In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This means that John's appearance on the scene signaled Malachi's great and awesome day of the Lord. The great and awesome day of the Lord had come. In the spirit of Elijah, John the Baptist came to prepare Israel for the coming of Yahweh. To turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. We just saw a picture here on the stage of how God does that. On that day that John came to prepare for, as Scripture has said, it would be a day of judgment and salvation. So when Matthew writes, in those days, that's what he means. In the days when the new age was breaking upon the earth, In the days when the kingdom of heaven was dawning, when the king came to his people, when God began to make all things new. In those days, when the day of the Lord arrived, the great and awesome day of the Lord. So it's not a literal day, like Tuesday, the day of the Lord. No, 
The day of the Lord signifies a visitation from God, a time when Yahweh comes to be near his people, which was the purpose of John, the prophesied Elijah, it was the purpose of his ministry, to prepare for that day. So the people of Israel, they're hearing this, they're seeing John dressed just like Elijah, sounding a lot like Elijah, and they begin flocking to hear his voice, coming out in droves. Look at verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were, being, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. A prophet who looks and sounds like Elijah powerfully proclaiming the advent of Yahweh, the coming of Yahweh and his kingdom. And so news of John spreads like wildfire. It goes all throughout Palestine. Everybody's hearing about John, the baptizer. And the only extra-biblical source of history we have for Palestine in this time is Josephus. And Josephus records that so many people were coming out to see John, so many Jews, that Herod Antipas, who's the ruler of Perea on the other side of the Galilee, or on the other side of the, the Jordan River, not the ruler of Judea, but that Herod grew concerned about John. Like, he's got this huge following in the wilderness. He became concerned about an uprising, and we'll read shortly in Matthew that John would be arrested for this very reason. In fact, Josephus speaks so much about John the Baptist and his ministry that he gets paragraphs and Jesus just gets a couple little sentences. So popular was John the Baptist. Now, certainly there were, there were Gentiles who came out to listen to John and hear what all of this commotion was about, but don't let it be lost on you. Matthew is making something crystal clear to us. John was preaching to the Jews. His message was to the Jews, and the Jews were flocking to him to hear it. And that's significant, because John is calling the Jews to repent. He's calling the people of God to repent. Because they were not living correctly, because they had strayed from loving relationship with God. They were living in violation of the covenants. John was calling the people to renounce their former way of living and to turn away from it and to now live as purified people as God, the kind that God had called them to be. That's, of course, the nature of repentance. Do you know what that means? That John's effectively calling these Jews to convert. It's similar to what Jesus says, repent and believe. Like, these are not believers. And as they came forward, and as they received that message, and as it gripped them in their hearts, then John baptized them in the waters of the Jordan. And it was a symbol of their newly purified life, of the things that they left behind and what they were walking into. Mark the gospel writer tells us that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So it's similar to baptisms that we do, but there is one major distinction. But I'll tell you about that later. 
Notice, as the people are getting baptized by John, they're also confessing their sins. So, there's potentially hundreds of people on the banks of the Jordan, and these people are coming down to the water about to be dunked by John, and they're, they're confessing their sins so everyone can hear it, like publicly proclaiming the ways in which they have been terrible. Can you imagine doing that? I mean, isn't that the mark of some real, true faith going on? Real repentance? That's a face of humility, being able to do that. Like, it's like saying, look, I am, I am nothing without my God. There is nothing good within me. I need his forgiveness. My flesh and my heart, they have failed. But God is my strength and my portion forever. So all glory be to him and none to me. Let him increase while I decrease. Right? That's what confession does. Confession is a necessary and holy, and yes, often difficult, part of repentance. The Apostle John writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What is repentance without confession of sins? Isn't it just hollow? Even a facade? Let us confess our sins to one another. And I won't make you come up here and shout them out in front of everybody. But it's good when we take that step as part of repentance. It's clear that many Jews were legitimately, authentically, genuinely repenting here. And it's an absolute revival. I mean, the people were, were coming to right relationship with God all over Israel. In fact, in the book of Acts, Paul encounters some people in Ephesus, like all the way in, in western Turkey, who had received the baptism of John. They hadn't heard about Jesus yet, but they received the baptism of John. So, yes, it was an absolute revival that was going on. And yet, there were some who did not believe. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he warned, uh, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So gathered along the western shore of the Jordan, mixed in with all of the people, but obvious, peculiar, were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I think it's fascinating that Matthew lists them together as if they were one coalition, one group of religious leaders because they were not. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, there was almost nothing that united them. The Sadducees, they were the ruling party in the temple. They were the elites. They were the Levitical high priests. So they, they had to be Levites. They had to descend from a certain bloodline to even be considered Sadducees. And because of their privileged bloodline, they considered themselves superior to the common Jews. But they were up here in the temple system, and all the Jews were down here. Thus, they're not afraid to cooperate with the Romans 
to maintain and to wield political power. It were the, the Jews that took Jesus to the Romans, those were the Sadducees. And they're also not afraid to use the temple system, which they controlled, to get wealthy off of the back of the common people. Now, in opposition to the Sadducees were the Pharisees. The word Pharisee literally means set apart. Or separated, I should say. They were the party of the people. Because if you worked hard enough, and if the right opportunities came your way, anybody could become a Pharisee. Paul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, was a Pharisee. The Pharisees diligently studied the law. They, wanted, they, they originally legitimately wanted to find ways to help people follow the law. And so they created a set of, of traditions and teachings to help make everything black and white, easy to follow. Right? Let's remove all that pesky ambiguity from the law, all those gray areas. Let's make it easy so we know how to follow it. And in the process, they ended up creating so many laws and traditions that it was impossible to follow. They piled up. They've come about everything you can think of, laws and traditions for every facet of life. There are 613 commands in the Mosaic Law. They added thousands on top of it. And inevitably, the people could not meet those rigid standards. So the Pharisees began to think of themselves as a cut above. Look how well we follow the law. They got so caught up in the minutia of their traditions that they lost the weightier matters of God's law. And instead of loving others as they loved themselves, the Pharisees preferred to obligate people to obey their traditions. The Sadducees outright rejected the traditions of the elders or the teachings of the Pharisees. And so these two religious parties were bitterly opposed. The Pharisees and Sadducees did not like each other. And yet they are united in Matthew. Do you know what united them? Their skepticism, their hypocrisy, their unbelief. Amazing how that can bring together bitter enemies. I say hypocrisy because it does appear, by what John is saying, it appears that some of these religious leaders have come to the banks of the Jordan River feigning repentance. Like maybe even going down in the water and and giving some token confession, I have been a bad person, and getting dunked. Like that's the idea that John is giving, or Matthew is giving. And so John, the hypocrisy is clear and obvious to them. He calls them out and he says, scathingly, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Right, those words are tipped with venom. Calling the religious leaders a brood of vipers, that's akin to calling them sons of serpents or sons of Satan, which is something that Jesus would say to these religious leaders in John chapter 8. Jesus said, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. In 
In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus will likewise call these same religious leaders a brood of vipers. And here, but here before John the Baptist, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they have come in all of their religiosity, pretending to repent to garner favor of the people, I presume. And it's why John says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So get that image, right? They're like, they're like snakes trying to slither away from this wildfire about to break upon them, the wildfire of wrath. So there's a judgment coming. kingdom of heaven is at hand. And just as salvation comes with that kingdom, so also comes judgment. As near as one is, the other is just as near. If they want to truly escape the fires of wrath that are about to break upon them, then what do they need to do? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Like, don't give me this fake garbage. Make it real. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Live it out. Obey it. Their heritage, their bloodlines, their presumptions, they will do nothing to save them from the wrath to come. Verse 9. And we do not presume to say, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to take from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. It was easy for these, these Jews to take their position with God for granted. They were the people of God. They were the children of Abraham. Theirs were the covenants and the promises, and they presumed to be safe. But that mentality, that mentality is deadly. All throughout the Old Testament, there were two Israels. I don't know if you realize this. In the Old Testament, there are two Israels. There's Israel, the bloodline, the nation of people, the geopolitical structure. Israel. And then there's another Israel inside of it. To Elijah, it was called a remnant. They are the people within the people. They are the faithful ones, the true lovers of God. They are the true children of Abraham. And I say this because being a Jew, or even a Jewish religious leader, did not guarantee that you were a child of God that you were one of God's people. That's what John is saying in verse 9. God can use these rocks to accomplish his purposes. He does not need you and your stony hearts. The true children of Abraham are the children of faith, They are the good trees who bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those like them were barren trees. Proud, presumptuous, barren trees. And it was time for their felling. Verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Once more, we see the nearness of the things that John is heralding. The judgment that comes with the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says it, even now the axe is laid to the root. Like, not in your future, now. 
The king is coming with his kingdom, and he comes with a righteous axe for which to hew down these worthless barren trees. And more than any other gospel writer, Matthew focuses on this coming judgment, how it is coming upon that generation. And he will remind us again and again as we go, out through, as we go through the gospel of Matthew. Judgment was coming for Israel for their unrepentant righteousness, for their presumption, their hypocrisy, and soon enough, and soon enough because they will reject the Son of God and slay their Messiah. The path was already set. The axe already laid to the root. The tree was cursed. And in 70 AD, the tree would fall. The Romans would destroy Jerusalem. They would burn the temple to the ground. They would slaughter the priesthood and kill the people. And the Jewish religious system would never rise again, even to this day. And John was only warning them before it was too late. As an act of mercy... A gracious warning, stern though it was, calling hypocrites to repent. Because John knew the significance and the power of Malachi's prophecy. So from the same passage that we read earlier, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son... Of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The fires of judgment were following the Messiah. But so also were righteousness and healing and joy, salvation and judgment arrived together at the great and awesome day of the Lord, the day when the king comes to his people which we will be reading about next week. Verse 11 says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So it's it's clear that at that moment, John had now turned from addressing the Pharisees and Sadducees, and now he's addressing the people that have really come to hear him. He's addressing the, the crowds specifically those who are truly repentant. And then John finally speaks of the one for whom he has been preparing the way. If John was mightier, this coming one is far mightier. If they regarded John, John is nothing beside the incomparable worth of this coming king, lower than the lowest sandal-toting slave, John will diminish to a shadow when the blazing excellence of the Son of God is finally revealed. John is preparing the way for the Messiah, a man, and that man is God. John can baptize with water, but Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. Water's good. The Holy Spirit is infinitely better. John speaks of what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 
Again, the great and awesome day of the Lord. That's the same passage that Peter quoted at Pentecost. Peter declaring that that great and awesome day of the Lord had indeed arrived. They were living in it. That God had come to dwell with us and that we are his people. And God himself is is with us as our God in every moment of every day. That day has come. John said the Messiah will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And fire in this context means refining fire, purifying fire. There's a sanctifying effect, a purifying effect, making you look bit by bit steadily into the image of Christ. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The King gives the Holy Spirit and together they sanctify the people. John's baptism looked forward. It looked forward to the glories that our baptism is awash in. John, was in. John offered a nameless baptism for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And it was all within the confines of the old covenant. But our baptism is in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit with victory over sin and life everlasting. Ours is the baptism of the new covenant who looks back on Jesus and realizes that all of the hopes of the Old Testament are fulfilled in him. That's the difference between John's baptism and ours. Glory beyond measure. But again, We're called to remember that with this good news comes the bad, for salvation and judgment cannot be separated. They cannot be separated. Verse 12 says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. When comes the king, he will bring... He will separate the wicked from the righteous. The righteous he will keep forevermore, and they will be with him. The wicked will feel the heat of fires that never die. So in speaking of unquenchable fires, we know that something has shifted in John's focus. He's not now addressing the things that, will, the things that were at hand. He's now addressing the things that are everlasting. The eternal state, heaven and hell. The one who is greater greater than John, the one who gives the Holy Spirit, he also wields this winnowing fork. He is the final judge, and he will separate the righteous from the wicked. And that means there is a day of judgment coming for every man, whatever the age, age of the earth, I mean. So just as urgent as in John's day, how urgently do we need to hear, repent? How urgently do we need to remember to confess our sins, to throw ourselves at the feet of the king and seek his salvation? 
Paul writes, Working together with him, with the king, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't receive these glories in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That's as true in John's day, in Paul's day, as it is in our day. So if you have sins to confess, do not let the sun set before you do. If you need to repent, then run. Run to Christ and leave those old ways behind. He happily gives his kingdom to any who repent. It is at hand. Has he not taken these stones and made them into his people? I know this stony heart needed his work. And now we, we stones, we are made into his own people. We are beloved and we are precious and we are alive forevermore because of his work. How well did John prepare for the coming of Jesus? I pray that the ministry of John has helped to make straight the paths that lead to your heart. That the king might come to your heart and that his reign might extend to every corner of your soul. I don't care if you've been a believer for 40 years or haven't come at all, but may that be true in your heart. However long you've been a Christian, you know better than anybody else that there are crooked ways in here, ways that need to be straightened, paths that need to be smoothed. Oh God, make straight the paths of my heart and help me to truly, authentically repent. God sent John for a specific ministry and a specific time, but there is much for you and I in the words of John, and especially when you realize that when Jesus begins his public ministry, he says the exact same words. In chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus begins his ministry with these words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Father, may that be true and every heart in this room, that we would be a repentant people. That we would lay aside all of those crooked things, those things that would drag us down and lead us, lead us into the fires. Save us from these, I pray. And wherever there is hypocrisy and presumption in this room, Lord, expose it. Expose it before it is too late. May all self-righteousness die at the foot of the cross. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.